Greetings. Welcome to the Upward Call. We're on the Upward Call number 10. It's called Pressing On. And I want to welcome you and hope that you are found very blessed today. I am Eric Newcomer. I'm from White's Run Baptist Church, and we're exploring the book of Philippians. And today's sermon, which is number 10 in this series, going through this letter of Paul's to the Philippian church, is really the one that is the title track, so to speak, as they would say in the music industry. This is the the one that it's all about. It all kind of centers on this, that what Paul is describing, uh, indeed through the entire letter, is this upward call of God in Christ Jesus, which is a call to know Him, which means it is a call to become Christ-like. It is a call to follow Him. And we're going to see today that the, the upward call uh, is very powerful. It's something that drives Paul. It is something that is his passion. And if we can wrap our minds around what it is he sees in this call and what this call is all about, we indeed ourselves will find ourselves greatly encouraged to be able to live this Christian life out, to live it in such a way that will be very glorifying to God, very edifying uh, for the rest of his people. So with that said, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3, And we're going to look at verses 12 through 17. Uh, First, we want to review what we talked about last time. The last one was called debits and credits. Debits and credits. We found Paul doing a, a kind of accounting. And he was giving the Philippian church a warning against those who are known to theologians and Bible scholars as Judaizers. Those who would try to insert works into the plan of salvation and into the gospel, thus adding to the gospel, making it really no gospel or no good news at all. They would say uh, that the the people that would follow Jesus Christ are required to perform the Old Testament laws and rituals, such, such as circumcision, observances of the feasts and the Sabbath and other things like that. He, Paul, gives his pre-conversion resume in chapter 3. He says, if anyone would have some reason to boast about what they do, about their adherence to the law, it would be me. And then he talks about his heritage and his good works and everything and his zeal, you know, to the point where he was persecuting the church before being converted by Christ himself. And so he gives that resume and then he counts it as all rubbish. He says, all of that I count as rubbish. It's all loss for the sake of Christ compared to knowing Christ and his righteousness. Let's take a look at how he summed that up in those last few verses of Philippians uh, 3, 8 through 11. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, this is a powerful passage, obviously. And what we see God saying is that, you know, Paul is taking the focus off of his own 
righteousness and he's putting the focus on to Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, he's trading the kind of righteousness you could develop from doing good works, which is really when we understand the gospel, no righteousness at all. He's throwing that away in preference for the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, because through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the righteousness of God itself, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfect life he lived, and all that goodness is credited to our account, according to the book of Romans chapter 3. Well, interestingly, this leads to becoming like him in his death. I want to take a look back at this verse very quickly here. And I want you to see that I may know him and the power of his resurrection is what Paul says, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him, that is Christ, in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul is talking about following Jesus in his humility in order to know that he is going to follow Jesus in his exaltation, his resurrection. To understand this, go back to chapter 2. Read verses 5 through 11 again, and there Paul describes our ultimate example of this in Jesus Christ, who humbled himself to take on human flesh, become obedient to God here on earth, obedient to the point of his death on a cross for our sins. Then and only then he was resurrected from the dead and then exalted to sit at the right hand of the Father, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so Paul is saying, I consider all the works that I did rubbish. Instead, what I do is is I focus on Christ. And as he went to death, so I will follow in that same way. I will see nothing of myself but the opportunity of obedience to God. And then I know that I will follow him and will know the power of his resurrection. Now, that's an incredibly lofty goal. But what we're going to see is that Paul is going to let us off the hook here. Because we might be reading that saying, Paul, how can I, you held up Jesus as an example, which is an impossibility for me to really follow. Then he gave us Timothy and Epaphroditus, which are more relatable people that we could maybe relate to and think that we could follow there in chapter two. But then he comes right back to Christ and says, I'm gonna be like him in death so that I can push through as it were to the resurrection. And we say, Paul, that's an impossibility. Well, Paul knows that's an impossibility. Look what he's going to say right here in verse 12. And these are our verses of focus today. 12 and 13 we're really going to look at, but I'm going to read through 17. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. 
and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Well, with that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for these words of your servant, Paul. We ask you this day that by the power of your spirit that you would help us to share in that same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead so that we may understand these things. And Lord, even more than that, we pray that you would give it a, give us a, a, a spirit of compliance to these things, a, a moldable, teachable spirit that the word would show us this day. And Lord, you would convert us by it. We thank you, Lord, for your great ministry to us by your spirit. And we ask you this day, give us understanding of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I'm going to propose as an outline for us today is, is fairly simple, really, and I'm going to show it to you in a single slide. What we're going to look at are these three phrases, forgetting what lies behind, I press on for the prize of the upward call. And so those are the three phrases that we're going to look at. And as you can see, those are taken right from verses 12 and 13 here. And he says, uh, or in verses 13 and 14, he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so that's what our outline looks like today. First, we're going to talk about forgetting what lies behind. This is an essential step. We have been converted by Jesus Christ. There was obviously a severe problem. When you think about the solution that God uh, had for the problem of humanity, it kind of speaks of the magnitude of the problem. He sent his only son who did not deserve to die, but sent him to die in our place in order that we could have the forgiveness of sins. And so such a radical cure means there was a radical problem. And this radical solution of the Son of God dying upon a cross uh, tells us that, it shows us that. How severe was the problem, you might ask? Well, I want to point out some things that describe in the New Testament who we were before Christ got a hold of us and changed us. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2 is a very key passage, the first three verses here. We were dead. We were following the ways of the world, which is really following Satan. We were led around by our own sinful desires and were by nature, by our very nature, children of wrath. That means deserving of the wrath of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul puts it this way. He says, I want you to know that, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice sexual, homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. It's a nice list, isn't it? Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And if we are honest with ourselves, we are on the list. We are on that list. And the list is not a catch-all of every sin that will send you to the wrath of God, that will send you to an eternal hell. No, on the list are some examples of the many things that we fall into. And look what he says in verse 11. He says, such were some of you. This dispels the myth that the, the Christian church is made up of those people who think they're good enough for it. 
Now I tell you, those that think they're good enough for it are the hypocrites. Because indeed, we have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church about a lot of major issues they were having there at that church. And he says, I want to remind you who you were. And this is who you were, but we are no longer. So who we were, we may have been religious folks before being called of God, before coming into the faith, so to speak. Well, that would put us in the company of Paul, who described that earlier in chapter 3, and we call that a self-righteousness. In other words, trying to do a bunch of uh, good things to get in good, practicing all the traditions of your religion and everything else. That was Paul, and if indeed we were religious before being converted by Christ, uh, that describes us as well. And this is a lesson to you if you have not, if, or if you do not know that you have been converted by God, that is, you are not certain that you are saved, but yet you're associating with the religious, you're joining a church, or you're trying to live a good life and a good moral life, you are that Paul of earlier in chapter 3, and you really need to read and pray about this chapter. And so we have to repent of those things that are in the past. We are forgetting what lies behind. The first step on our climb on this upward call is to forget what lies behind. We have to repent of our dead works. We have to count them as rubbish. And Paul says this about growing up in faith. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. In the book of Galatians and here in the book of Corinthians, he calls, considers the childish ways, the laws, the self-righteousness, the Paul before Jesus intervened in his life. But the mature person is the one who lives by faith. The mature one is the one, he says, thinks this way that we're talking about in Philippians. Now, we need to talk about what happened to us in Jesus Christ. What happened to us in Jesus Christ was this. It says, in him, and this is in Colossians chapter 2, starting verse 11, in him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead, here he mentions again, we were once dead, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We have this victory in Christ. This is what has happened to us. This is why and how we are able to forget what lies behind. Whatever we thought we were before Christ, whatever wrongs we did, whatever right we did, all those things, 
throw them away. We count them as rubbish because indeed we are new creations. We have been made new in Jesus Christ. And so what we need to do in order to forget what lies behind, we need to repent of our old patterns of thinking and we need to be renewed. We also have to let go of old hurts. Here's something I really want you to think about is this. When we look at the at the uh, past, we also have to be able to forgive ourselves. To forget what lies behind means we have to forgive ourselves. Now we must not forget who we were and the lessons that we learned from it because from from our new perspective and from our regeneration in Christ and the Word of God, we can look back on those things and we can learn and we can have understanding in order to help others out of those things and into a new life in Christ. But think about Paul. When we met Paul, we first met him in Acts chapter 7, the very end of the chapter. There, a very faithful deacon of the church named Stephen was giving a killer sermon. I mean, he was just getting it. He was calling down holy fire upon adversaries. And he was giving this sermon to the public in general, but specifically he addressed the leaders of the Jews who were rejecting Christ. In fact, some of the same people that crucified Christ. And he boldly stood up to them. He called them stiff-necked, among other things. And he reviewed their entire history of, of behavior in the nation of Israel in a very powerful way. They thanked him for it by stoning him to death. And we meet Paul, who then was called Saul, standing there taking care of the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. It's like, here, here, I'll hold your coat so you can get a better wind-up, so you're not inhibited by your clothing and you can really hurl a good one at that guy. And so he stood by approving of this murder of Stephen. Stephen was innocent. He was telling the perfect truth, in fact, telling the truth of God. But they all, the leaders, including Saul, reckoned him a fool, a liar, and a blasphemer. But now Paul stands in the place of a person who realizes this is true. Everything Stephen said was true. And that he was not a, a fool. He was brave. And he was not a blasphemer. He was actually filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Do you think it ever crossed Paul's mind that what could Stephen have accomplished? What have I done to the cause of the church by by approving of his stoning? Why didn't I intervene? Why didn't I jump in? Why didn't I see this injustice? Well, Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus. He was going to another city to persecute even more Christians. And Jesus intervenes in his life and he says, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? How can a man who stood by and approved of this murder go on? How can he join in with the people, the friends, the family of this man in this new cause of Christ then? How is that possible? He had to forget what lies behind. 
Paul had to forget what lies behind. And I bring this example up, and I think God gave us the example of Paul for this very purpose, is there's not one of you listening to this today that has done worse than Paul did to God himself in persecuting his bride, the church. And that's how you can know you can forget what lies behind in Christ because he paid the price for those sins. So we have to look back in our past. We have to forgive forgive ourselves and then turn our attention to the present and to the future. Part of that also involves forgiving others. And Jesus makes it very clear that we ourselves cannot have been forgiven if we're not forgiving others. He sets it up as a condition for entry into the kingdom that you can't possibly be forgiven if you will not forgive. And so we have to forgive others. We have to forgive ourselves. We have to leave it all behind because let's face it, we were born into sin. We ourselves sin. And as the scripture says, we were by nature children of wrath. We are immersed in a world under the control of the evil one. Everything we see and do and handle and taste and touch, all these things tainted by sin and tainted by the ways of the world. If we don't leave all of that behind, if we don't forsake everything we think we know, we cannot move forward. And so we must forget what lies behind and we must press on then. We must press on. This word press on means to seek after eagerly or earnestly endeavor to acquire. And so this is uh, something that in and of itself has an idea of reaching, stretching, you know, making sure to to pursue something. This is used uh, in, in, our, in the concept of pursuing. It means to follow after and metaphorically it means to seek after earnestly. If this is used in the context of hostility, this word is translated as persecute. And so this is a severe word. It can be either positive or negative. It depends on what you're talking about. But this is the word that's usually translated as persecute in the Gospels and other places. Interestingly, Paul uses this word in Philippians 3, 6, just before what we're taking a look at here. When he describes his former life, he says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Then he uses it very cleverly here twice. Later, just a few sentences later, he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on. In other words, I pursue now, instead of pursuing Christians, I'm pursuing Christ himself. And he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. He uses it again, beginning of 14 there. I press on. And so this is a, he wants to show that he is serious about moving forward, that his present tense situation is pressing on. And we are told to pursue many things in the Christian life. This word's used to encourage us in many different ways. In Romans, we're to pursue hospitality. We're to pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbringing. We are to pursue, of course, love as chief of all the virtues. We are to pursue to do good. We are to pursue righteousness. 
We are to pursue godliness, faith, love, steadfastness. We are to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. We are to pursue peace with everyone. And Peter again says that we ought to pursue peace. And so this is a strong word to indicate an effort. In other words, these things are worth reaching for. These things are worth fighting for. And this is something that we should be ready to press on toward. Paul also presents this word to us in the present active, the present active. And in the Greek, the present tense means that it is a continuing action, that it's being done currently. It is not finished. It is an ongoing process. And so in verse 13, he adds to the strength of this by saying, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. This is the idea of stretching out toward something, reaching up for the next handhold in climbing is what I want you to picture here, that, that that hand is reaching out, that every part of the body is pushing forward to get the next hold and pull ourselves up just a little more. Or I want you to picture if you're a runner, stretching forward for the finish line, trying to gain every advantage as the runners come toward the tape, they thrust themselves forward and that last jump, sometimes they fall down because of it. This is what we want to see us doing in straining forward. So forgetting what lies behind, we press on. And our focus, therefore, as we press on, has to be ahead. We unhesitatingly move toward the prize. And that's the next part of our outline here, to press on for the prize of the upward call. The upward call is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. Pardon my typo there. I'll fix it for the morning service. And so the idea here is he's pressing on for the upward call of God. And this upward call is to know Christ. Let me show you what I mean here. He, he brings this together for us in the previous section that we read at the beginning. He says, um, I, I want to be found in him, that is in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. This prize that he's talking about is the reward at the end of a race. This is the reward that comes at the end of a race. And traditionally in the Greek games and things like that, it would be a, a wreath of laurel would be placed upon the head. But this prize does not fade. This upward call is not just for a slightly better life now. The call of God is not merely an encouragement. The call of God is not even just an invitation. It's something far greater than that. And this is when we really need to see what this word means. The upward call here in verse 14 is the noun form of a word. And it can speak of an invitation. It can speak of an invitation as casual as an invitation to dinner. But as often as the case in the New Testament, how this word is used is that this is a divine invitation to embrace the salvation of God. 
This noun is used 11 times in the New Testament, and every time this noun form is used, it's speaking of this call of God. It's speaking of what the things that God calls us to, either generally in salvation or specifically some aspect of our salvation. And so this is a very important word. Now, even more common than the noun form of this word, appearing like 148 times is the verb form of this same word. And as it's used for Paul, it's especially interesting. The verb form, of course, means to call or to invite or to name. It can be used to give a name to. When Jesus says, you know, you're Peter, but I'm going to call you Cephas, you know, he uses this word. It can be, it can mean to simply call one's name, or it can mean, it could be used in a way as he is called by the name, whatever. And so the word is very much the same range of meaning of the, of our word call, but in its special usage in the Bible, there are some times when it especially speaks of the call of disciples. Jesus uses it in Matthew 9, 13, where he go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus uses this word in his parables that speak of calling servants, the master calling the servants to him and giving them instruction or the wedding guests uh, being called by God to attend the wedding. But Paul uses this very interestingly. He uses it in a general way about God one time. He says God calls things into existence. But more importantly, when Paul generally uses this word, he is speaking of God who calls people to salvation or calls those that are saved to a vocation or a blessing of their salvation. We see this word used in things like Romans 8.30, in which he speaks of the Christian life as something having been accomplished. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Their calling is in that unbreakable sequence that happens to believers. They're, they're predestined, they're called, they're justified, and then they're glorified. And this is the word that he is using here. We're called to many specific things in Christ, not just to salvation generally, but let me run through a, a list of things here because I want you to know what the upward call is. This is connected linguistically to all these other things. So when Paul says that he presses on toward the prize, the prize being this upward call, it's a multifaceted, beautiful gem. Let's take a storm through some of these, shall we? Of course, we talked about the general call to salvation. We talked about, uh, and in that is a call to repentance for people. And the Christian life is a lifestyle of repentance. It's a continuing thing that we continue in. We are called to follow Jesus as he called the disciples to himself, told them to follow me. We are called to freedom according to the book of Galatians. We are called to hope according to the book of Ephesians. We are called to unity according to the book of Colossians. We are called into his kingdom and glory according to the first letter uh, to the Thessalonians. In that same letter, we are called 
to holiness. And Peter reiterates this call to holiness. What else does he call us to? He calls us to salvation through sanctification, through him setting us apart, we are saved. We are called, of course, to eternal life. And he tells Timothy also, we are called to a holy calling. In other words, our our calling is different. Our calling is set aside. Our calling is special, holy to God. We are called to endurance. As Peter writes to churches who are experiencing affliction and difficulty, he says, we've been called to endurance. We are called also to bless others. We are called to God's eternal glory. And we are called to God's glory and excellence. And most importantly, perhaps, is this, that we are called to be children of God. We are called to be children of God. God has called you upward. And I want you to notice something very important about this. I want you to see that the call upward is a call of direction. It's not a point that we will achieve in this life. It is a direction that we are to go. The upward call is never fully answered by us in this life. It cannot be, but it is to be constantly answered in this life, if that makes sense to you. It's not a position we reach. It's not a place we come to. It's not a destination. We are called to journey, and we are called sojourners in this land. People are visiting for a while, going back and forth through the land land like Abraham did, who was not of that land yet. The land was given to his descendants. And one day, the new heaven and new earth will be given to these descendants of Abraham, the sojourners in the land, those that are on the upward call, that are marching toward Christ and reaching up for all these blessings that he has. Now, I hope you can see in this in this, this movement in the book of Philippians, there's this constant upward kind of call. And as I show you the slide here, I want to mention a few of these to you. Because as I've preached through the book of Philippians and as I've tried to research the rest of it as I'm getting ready to to finish the series here in five, six sermons, I felt like I was saying the same thing over and over. And I felt like that because there's this pattern in the book of Philippians. There's this constant pattern in the book of Philippians. And the pattern goes like this. In chapter two, he talks about us going from our concerns to the concerns of others. And he gives the example of Christ who went from humiliation to exaltation. And then he talked about his own example in which he goes from confidence in his works to glory in Christ. He goes from loss to gain. And this is the movement of the Christian life, that it constantly moves from a one thing, from the old to the new, from the past to the future, from loss to gain, from death to life, from darkness to light, from blindness to sight. We constantly are called upward and toward the light of Christ. This word is when it's used of the call of God with a person in the New Testament. It's always used of the saved in Christ. 
I, I want you to absorb that for a moment. This word to call, when it is used speaking of the call to salvation, not in its literal sense of someone being called a name or a place being called a thing, but of someone being called to God, it's always used of those who are effectually called. In other words, they actually end up there with God. If we've received this call, we're on our way. Every other time this is spoken of, and it's spoken of by Jesus generally calling the sinners to repentance. You know, he didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinner. It's used generally only then. But when it speaks of the call of God elsewhere, it's used of those to who answer it, who actually respond, who actually repent and trust in Jesus Christ and begin their upward journey. I want you to look at a couple verses with me. First of all, I want you to look at Romans 11.29 and how this is used there. In Romans 11.29, Paul says this. He says, The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In the context there, he's speaking of the nation Israel, and he's answering the hypothetical question someone would ask him because he's just explained the gospel in the book of Romans. He's answering the hypothetical, what about Israel? Why all this Old Testament stuff? Where, where are they in this whole process? And he's saying, look, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, he's keeping all the promises that he made. He hasn't cast them aside in that kind of way. And let me ask you, has God called you? Has he called you to himself? If he has, be encouraged because that means he has begun his work. And look what Paul says in the beginning of the letter to the Philippians. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Boy, there's one more verse I want to show you, and uh, it's powerful. Are you ready for this? In 1 John, when we mention this, that we're called to be children of God. Look what it says. See what kind of love the Father has for us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you see the key here? Do you, let, me, let me highlight the, highlight this for you, how this works. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The upward call of God is to know Christ. Do you want to be a better believer? Do you want to be better for your church and the work of God? Do you want to be better for your family and for your friends? Do you want to be more joyful and effective and, and humble like Christ was and, and zealous like Paul was? Do you want to be all these things? Then the key is the upward call to be so focused on the person of Christ, to be so reaching forward to that, to him and who he is, to know him and the power of his resurrection. That is what transforms us as it will ultimately transform us. Revelation of Jesus Christ is what transforms us. 
That's why in my preaching, I, I endeavor to put Christ before you and show you everything that he is, everything that he has done, and everything that he will do so that it will purify you and affect in you Christ-likeness. The upward call is a powerful, powerful thing, and I hope it has been encouraging to you. I want to uh, go on at the end of this here, and I want you to see that the activity of the believer, the activity of the believer in this upward call is pressing on to strive forward, to make every effort as if we're actually going to attain the prize. Not in order to gain the prize, but because you have gained it and wish to experience it. God calls you to every benefit of life in him. He calls you to know Jesus Christ himself and to know him is to be transformed. Every Every gain you desire in your Christian life is found by knowing Christ and achieved by focusing upward and pressing on. Now, if this sermon was just about a pep talk, just telling you to press on, it would be no good. I I want to show you in the scriptures uh, what I mean by that. Powerfully true, and I've got to go back to where I can find it now. And I want to bring you there. Paul says, I've not already obtained this. I am only on my way. But he presses on. Why? I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is important because we fight, we progress from a position of victory. We work out of an accomplished work of Christ. And we respond to the upward call because of the call itself. Pointing down the track to the finish line, understand that your effort will be met by the power of God who will carry you through, who began a good work and you will bring it to completion. You need only determine to go. You keep your eye on the prize. You push forward. And when you do, you will succeed in the Christian life. This is a bit like weightlifting and having a spotter. The purpose of a spotter is, well, number one, for safety to keep you out of trouble. But a good spotter, what a good spotter will do is urge you on, lift the load one more time. And as you strain to lift, you're actually not able to lift that load, but you can lift quite a bit. So the spotter gently pulls up and allows you to push with all of your might. But he brings you the rest of the way that you can complete the lift through the whole range of motion. And you've gotten a better exercise than simply failing. God won't let you stumble. He won't let you fail. He's going to finish the good work that he has called you to. And he is going to lift that load. Now he's going to let you strain under it because that strain will make you stronger. He's going to let you groan under it sometimes. But he's going to hear your groans. And he is there to help and to save and to help you press on and to urge you forward. Press on. 
Make that your thing. Forget what lies behind and move toward the goal, the upward call in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, this day we are so greatly encouraged by your word of truth. We thank you for making it known to us. We thank you for, Lord, this great upward call in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us not to simply rest, but help us to see what has been done on our behalf. Help us to see the work of Christ. Help us to be inspired by the great cloud of witnesses in your Holy Scripture, people like Paul and others who stand, as it were, at the finish line and call to us through your word to press on, to come on. You can do it. You can move forward. Let us hear your spirit today. Call us forward. Call us to completion. Call us to finish the course in a way that brings you great glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Why, thank you for listening, and I encourage you to contact us. If you have any questions about what you've heard, you can contact us at whitesrun.org. You can find us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. You email us there, and we will respond to your email personally. We can help you find a local church. We can help you uh, through difficulties. Uh, We even have biblical counseling available to you. Just write us with your concerns, your questions, your comments, even your criticisms, and we'll be happy to get back to you. May God bless you in Jesus' name.